Well, anyone who's ever dropped a mercury thermometer on the floor, anybody ever done that? <laughs> yeah, I, well, you discovered how it splattered the mercury, just glass too, but the, but the mercury just splattered everywhere, all over the floor. And then when you went to clean it up, I'm sure you discovered that it, it interestingly enough, rejoined itself as if it had never really been apart. It's a very, very strange kind of an experience. And so I want to show you a clip uh, of an old Terminator movie. I don't recommend all these, but I happen to have noticed this one in it. And it speaks about how the mercury kind of uh, does exactly what I was talking about. So we'll see if we can get this up. So you can see, you know, it splatters all over the place. And then when you get it to touch itself, it just kind of becomes uh, one again. I love all that bass. Uh, we got the bass really cranked. That's, I love that. And speaking of bass, didn't you enjoy having Matt McAdams on the bass this morning, all the way from Liberty University, where he is studying to become Dr. Uh, McAdams? And uh, the way my back feels this morning, I could use a touch from Doc McAdams. So hurry up and get it done. He, oh, look at him. He's going, oh, I'd love to get my hands on you. <laughs> But this is a perfect example, this little clip here, of what happens when the body of Christ gets together in a group setting. Even though we may come from many different parts of the country, and even the globe for that matter, we, we are one in Christ Jesus. And uh, we begin to format into this one big happy family from all over the place. It's like we were splattered all around the globe. And then when we come together in a revival meeting or we come together at a, at a Christian concert or something along that line, and we just, it's like we become this big family. It's a, it's a picture, I think, of what heaven is going to be like when, we, when we're gathered from all the four corners of the earth and we come together as a family of God. And that's how each church is expected to function as I read the scriptures. And we're going to read, continue reading and, and studying in Philippians beginning with chapter 2 this morning in just a moment. But that's part of what this lesson, this study is going to be about, about how each church is expected to function like a big family. And uh, look, we don't all agree on everything. There, there are lots of opinions in the life of any church. And so everybody is not going to agree upon everything, but we are supposed to function as one big family. Can I get an amen on that? And you know what? Your idea about something, uh, your thoughts about it, and the things that you have decided or whatever, uh, they, may, they may be a better idea than someone else's idea. It, your idea may be better than the idea that everybody voted to do. Uh, your idea may not be selected as the one that we follow, but it doesn't mean that your idea was bad or that it was sinful or weak or whatever. It just means that we have difference, difference of opinions. And as the church of Jesus Christ, we are not to function like the world. We are to function like God's family. And that's what Paul is going to remind us of this morning. And this is a message, not, this is not just for Lakeview, it's for Lakeview, but it's, but it's for every church of Jesus Christ around the world. It's interesting, this morning I had someone came up and said, thank you for the message last week and the points that you gave. 
And he said, I, I, I put it up on in front of me on the mirror or somewhere where I could look at it every day this past week. And it was such a blessing to me. I had someone else that just before we came out in the prayer room that said, you know, what you shared last week about being born into a broken world and that we have these broken hearts that need to be healed and fixed. He said, there wasn't a whole lot that we had not already known about, but somehow that ministered to my heart all week long. Now, this is exactly how reading God's word works. Most of us, how many would say that you've read through the Bible front to back at least once in your life? Okay. All right. So, so really, if you're reading through it again this year, for the most part, there, there's no words there that you haven't already read. There are no concepts there that you haven't already been exposed to, whether you thought deeply about them or not. But by the, by the process of going back through and rereading it and taking it back in, God continues to feed our soul and to, and to give us spiritual perspective. Uh, but because we all, we who are in Christ in this family, because we all agree on who Jesus is, and if you, you, you haven't agreed who Jesus is, that's why I said we're going to give you a chance before you leave to, to, to decide for yourself about this Jesus. It's so important for you. But many of us have already agreed who Jesus is. And because we've already decided to follow his teachings in our lives, we are family. I love something that I saw on, uh, on uh, social media. In fact, it was early this morning, and I, I don't even know if I got it down exactly right, but it says something like this. When we love Jesus, we belong to him. Everyone who belongs to Jesus belongs to each other. Can I say that again? This is a big family. It's a family affair. When we love Jesus, we belong to him. Everyone who belongs to Jesus belongs to each other. And so the Apostle Paul knew that the enemy of God, while he was away in chains, in prison, waiting for trial, he knew that one of his favorite churches in the whole world at Philippi, he knew that that church that he loved with all of his heart was going to be accosted by the enemy of God. And that, that somehow, some way, however the devil gets people into the church, the, the, main, uh, the main heartbeat of the church, somehow he has a way of weaseling his way in there. And, and Paul knew that that church and every life-giving church was going to be confronted, now listen carefully, with divisive people who will be used to destroy the unity that Jesus desires for every one of his churches. And he was concerned. Paul was concerned. He said, I can't be there to lead them, to protect them, to guide them when these assaults uh, come at the church. And so uh, he was afraid the church was going to suffer division. And he was afraid that the church was going to lose something that it, it had that he pre appreciated so much about them. And that was a spirit of unity in the life of the church. So this next section of his letter to the Philippian church, it has to do with the things they have in common and some things that might cause division. So let's read. We've got just three or four verses here, four verses we're going to read. So listen as I share. Chapter 2. Verse 1, therefore, 
If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy, that's Paul's joy, he said, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Wow, there's a lot in there, and we could spend a lot more time than I'm going to give to it this morning. But take a look at verse 1. If you can, we, yeah, we'll leave that up there. I want you to look at verse 1. Let me just give you a couple of thoughts about verse 1 and verse 2, and then I'm going to spend most of my time on verse 3 and 4. Verse 1, first of all, it may help us as we read this to realize that the word if, would you say if? If. The word if could literally be exchanged with the word since. Since. And this may help us in capturing Paul's uh, his, his motivation for sharing this. And so let me, let me kind of put it this way. You, you watch the verse up there in the language that you have, and then let me intersperse some thoughts using the term since. Since people who know Jesus always find encouragement. And let me just say, if you know Jesus Christ, the moment that you met Jesus as your personal Savior, you got encouraged. Amen? I'm telling you, it's incredible. And if you look to Jesus before you leave this place this morning, and you've never really looked to him as your personal Savior before, you're in for an incredible treat of encouragement. So since, Paul says, since people who know Jesus always find encouragement, and since... Christ loves us. And since we love him, and since we love each other, we find consolation. We get consoled. Everybody in here has trouble once in a while, sometimes more than, than one time a day. And sometimes it's multiple problems and issues that we have to face because the enemy comes after us. We have all these, these, these challenges. But since Christ loves us and we love him and we love each other, there's comfort in that. You know, Dory's surgery is not gone. It, it wasn't done away with this morning. But my prayer is that if you talk to her after the service, that our praying over her comforted, comforted her. It gave her a consolation in her spirit, and anybody else for whom we have prayed. Okay, here's the third one. Since the Holy Spirit makes us a family, we can experience fellowship. Since the Holy Spirit makes us a big family, we can experience something called fellowship. That's fun. That means when you look around and you see the different ones that are here today that made it in, it's like, hey, we, we, we celebrate 
uh, who Jesus is. And we celebrate what he has done in our lives in the past. And we celebrate what he can do in somebody's life. And we celebrate the way God is helping and blessing many of our people. And we just acknowledge a few of them. Uh, people that have been risen to the podium and, and had excellent service, whether it's sports or music or whatever it may be. The Holy Spirit makes us a family and we, we get to experience fellowship and that's consoling. And then uh, fourthly, since we are family, we share love and concern for one another. And that's part of what we've already done a little bit this morning. Because of all these things, Paul says, we should have a tremendous spirit of unity in our midst. Now that's just verse 1, and that's just some of it. Now take a look at verse 2. Can we put verse 2 back? Can you flip that back? I didn't ask you to do this, and if you can't, yeah, there we go. So you can follow along if you don't have your Bible in front of you. Uh, verse 2. So Paul says, when I think of you, my joy gets frustrated. Why does my joy get frustrated? Because of the potential disunity and division that can happen in the life of a church. And he said, I'm stuck here in prison. I can't get to you. Uh, and I know there are some rumblings. I'm hearing a few little rumblings that are coming my way. And I, when I think of you, even though I, the, the part of our, uh, that I just talked about in verse 1 brings me joy, he said, I, I have these, these frustrations because I'm worried for you. I'm concerned, I'm frustrated about the fact that disunity can come in at any point and create division. But if each of you has the same mind, which is to be united in love and serving Jesus with a cooperative spirit with one another, then he says, I feel better. Whew. My joy is complete then. Because at first I started to worry. I started to fret. But here's what I know. If you will stay focused, any church of Jesus Christ, this church, Lakeview, if we stay focused with the same mind, which is to be united in love and serving Jesus with a cooperative spirit with one another, then Paul says, my joy is complete. And I will just say, that makes a pastor's joy much more complete. It truly does. And he says, I won't have to concern myself with the church becoming fractured if you'll do these things. So, all right. Now that's verses 1 and 2. So let, let's move on to the last half of the study this morning. Because in it, Paul gives us some inside stuff on why churches get off track. As a matter of fact, what he tells them is often the same reason marriages fail and sometimes families get fractured. It's some of the same principles that work in human relationships. So let, let, me, let me talk about that a little bit. Let's read verse 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. I hadn't planned to do this, but I'm going to, let me, let me see if I can pull this up really quickly here. Yeah, here we go. Uh, last Tuesday uh, at 8.47 p.m., 
I sent a text to Coach Greg Tonigal, and it said, way to go, Greg and team. Proud of you, PT. That's Pastor Tim, in case you didn't know. And at 10-10, this is what the coach of the national championship team said. Thanks, Pastor Tim. God spoke, we heard, and he transformed us throughout the year. The best part of coaching. Now, is that giving God glory? Is that giving God credit? This is this business about, so, so he says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interests of others. So literally, he says that followers of Jesus cannot, say not, cannot live in the center of their own universe and serve Jesus. As servants of Christ, we cannot afford to live at the center of our own universe any more than the coach can live at the center of his own talent and his own expertise as a leader. This coach understands that it's bigger and broader and much more extensive than just him. But many people live with empty conceit, thinking that somehow they are the center of attention and that the world revolves around them. And so Paul says, look, to avoid being fractured and losing unity and losing the one heart, one mind, he said there can't be any selfishness and there can't be any empty conceit in the church. No selfishness and no conceit. We are to have a mind he says, that is humble toward others by regarding others as more important than ourselves. So we can't afford to be looking out for our own personal interests as smart as we might be, as seasoned and experienced as we might be, as confident as we might be that we get it right more times than wrong. We can't be looking out for the personal interests, our interest, without including a concern for the interest of others. And that's one of the reasons why we've taken this 30 pieces of silver love offering. I hope everybody puts something in. You don't even have to sign your name. If you only want to put five cents in, don't put your name on because I know you'd be embarrassed to do that. But that five cents is going to go to bless some people, to bless some people away from this place and to invest. And so if you didn't get a bag, Get a bag. There should be some laying around here somewhere. And next Lord's Day, walk forward with all the rest of the body and place in what God has put on your heart to do. Because you have a concern for the interest of others. Now, let's take a look at the physical world for just a moment. I'll give you a little science lesson. And I'm going to say that everything I say about science... You can go see Lane Mackey, and he will explain what I was really trying to say, okay? Because I know he loves me, and he'll try to say, yeah, he didn't do so good, but this is what he was trying to bring across. Let me tell you how it really works, okay? So uh, with that having been said, I want to show you a picture of a man. By the way, this man and Ron Hersberger, I don't know, I saw Ron had to get up and leave for a moment, ran a tremendous program, basketball program for kids of this area. Let's give God praise and glory for, thank you, Lane. Thank you for all the, and uh, 
Yeah. And all your concessions, people, and everybody that it took, your coaches and everybody. But I want to show you a picture of a man from the 15th century who revolutionized science. Now, I could say, uh, Lane, do you know who that is? But I'm not going to embarrass him. He probably knows. But his name is Nicholas Copernicus. Nicholas Copernicus. According to an article from Renaissance and the Scientific World, Nicholas Copernicus, born 1473 to 1543, one of the most important contributions of Copernicus was to the field of astronomy. Now, I know what you're thinking. What in the world does that have to do with Paul's lesson to the Philippian church that we just were talking about? Hang on. Copernicus placed the sun at the center of the universe rather than the earth. The previous system, the Ptolemaic system, was geocentric with the earth at the center of the universe. The earth at the center of the universe. Copernicus revolutionized the world because he postulated that it is not the earth that everything revolves around, but it is the sun that is at the center of the universe as we know it. And so we've got a little PT version of a diagram there. And uh, you have to understand, sometimes it's late at night and sometimes it's early in the morning. And, uh, you know, it's, I'm a little sleepy sometimes. I'm doing the best I can, but you get the picture. This is, this is Copernicus saying the sun is at the center. And the planets, the earth, stars, and everything else is revolving around the sun as the center. Everything revolves around the sun. So because, because that was the truth... It turns out that, that Copernicus was correct about that. It changed the way science studied the universe. And it ultimately became uh, helpful because it was accurate. And that, that was the impact that he had on science and astronomy. In fact, they've described this as the Copernicus revolution. He revolutionized science because he got things right about what's at the center and what revolves around what. Now... No more physical science for a second. Let's talk about the world of human development, keeping this center of the universe thought in mind. Jean Piaget, who was a Swiss psychologist, has written about what happens, he studied what happens from birth to about 18 months in a child's life. Then I'm going to quote to you what he says. You may be able to follow it and you may follow it a little ways and get muddled like I did at first, and then I'll kind of tell you what I think it means. But here's what, here's what he wrote. The child's initial universe is entirely centered on his own body and action in an egocentrism as total as it is unconscious for lack of consciousness of the self. In the course of the first 18 months, however, there occurs a kind of Copernican revolution. Remember hearing that? There, this, this happens in an 18-month-old or somewhere thereabouts in their life, a Copernican revolution, or more simply, a kind of general decentering process whereby the child eventually comes to regard himself as an object among others in a universe that is made up of permanent objects, unquote. All right. So what that means is, I think, that we start out thinking that we are at the center of our universe. That's how we begin life. That's how we default. And so we've got another little 
PT illustration that we're going to throw up there. And because we're not using the center screen, it takes a moment for that switch back and forth. But, but the, uh, Piaget is saying that self is at the center for the first 18 months of a child's life, more or less. And so it goes something like this. Anybody can have a, 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 a one, a, like a birth to 18 months in your house? Anybody got Okay. Anybody else? All right, so see if this sounds familiar. And for those of you who've raised children, see if this sounds familiar for those first 18 months. It's all about me. All about me. It's all about what I want and what I don't want. It doesn't matter what anyone else wants but me. Me. I want to play when I want to play. And I want to play where I want to play. Could be the street. Could be where I want to play where I want to play. And I want my toys to belong to me and no one else has the right to touch them or play with them. I want to eat when I say and I want to eat what I want. I will relieve myself when and where I want to no matter how much you talk about the potty. If I fall down, I don't want to get hurt. And if I cry about something, I don't care what anybody else thinks about it. I want what I want, and I don't want what I don't like. And so on, and so forth. That's what Piaget is talking about. Everything in his world, or her world, revolves around her. Now, re remember the sun, and everything revolves around the sun. Now we're talking about self. Everything revolves around the self. Are you following the logic here? Okay. But Piaget says that after about 18 months, there needs to be a Copernican revolution in that child's life that teaches the child that the world does not, in fact, revolve around him and that there are other people and other things that have to be factored in in order to live in this society. So there's a wake-up call coming for every child born into this world and it usually isn't very pretty when it happens. Amen? It's not much fun for either one. Sadly, that wake-up call doesn't happen for everyone. And we call that person spoiled. We call that teenager spoiled. Or as my son-in-law from Knoxville says, spoiled. You're spoiled. Spoiled. And sometimes they are adult spoiled. So no one wants to be around a spoiled adult. You don't want a spoiled adult as your best friend. Not really. Uh, the last thing you want in life is to be married to Mr. Spoiled or the counterpart, Mrs. Spoiled. Paul says we have selfish people in every church around the world. That's what Paul is teaching us, a premise. There are spoiled people in every church all around the world. Good people, people that we love, people that we care about, but nonetheless spoiled. And I'm glad he's the one that said it, and it wasn't me. So don't get mad at me. We're studying what Paul said, okay? So let me ask you this question. Would you like to be the one to tell a person in the church? Would you like to be the one to tell the person in your church 
that they are selfish and spoiled. How would you you like to have that assignment? It's your job. Hey, I I call you on the phone, send you an email, say, hey, so I'll just pick on Bob because I just happen to be looking that way. So Bob, I want you to call so-and-so. I want you to tell them they're, they're spoiled and they need to stop being so selfish in how they function in the life of the church. And Bob says, Bob probably, you know, he probably tried to do it if I really asked him, and it was serious, but because he's a good guy. But, it, but the answer to that is, does, does a chicken have lips? <laughs> That's the answer. No. No, I don't want to tell anybody they're selfish, and I don't want to tell anybody they're spoiled. There are some folks who say, you know, guess what? They have, they have good minds, they have great personalities perhaps, we love being around them, but they are so new to the Christian faith, they are so new to the life of the church that sometimes their ideas are not wise. And they don't know that yet. And so the general church has to be careful of someone who's too new. And then there's the other side. And then it'll sound like I'm, you know, so, so go easy on me here. But sometimes we've been around so long and had our way so long and get so stuck in our routine and our ruts that we don't want anybody to tell us that we need to be open to something new and something different once in a while. Can I get a little mild, weak, anemic amen on that? <laughs> okay. I'm not asking for much. Okay. But what if I told you, and thank you for laughing because it makes this a lot easier, trust me. <laughs> What if I told you the same thing needs to occur spiritually in our lives? As near as I can tell what Paul's driving at here, this Copernican revolution, this wising up and having a wake-up call about selfishness and empty conceit, that needs to happen spiritually in our lives. Why? Because we're living in a broken world and we have broken hearts that don't know how 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 to always see these things clearly. And, and if you, you need to understand that better, it's last week's DVD. Go pick it up and it'll, it'll help you, trust me. See, we need a guide for our lives that leads us to God and not toward the enemy. We need to exchange our sinful self as the guide. I, I, I'm in charge of my universe and so I'll be the judge, I'll be the guide. I'm charting my own world course. no. We need to exchange our sinful self as the guide and invite God to come into our hearts and into our minds and into our worlds and transform us and, and, and make our lives uh, as, as though they are moving toward God and not the enemy of God. That, that's what we need in this world. That's the wake-up call that many of us uh, said yes to at some point in our lives. Now, let me make this even a little more relevant. According to Google statistics, about 93 million selfies were taken per day as far back as 2014. And that's just on Android devices alone. That's not counting all of the uh, Apple stuff and all of that. 93 million selfies per day all the way back to 2014. One poll found that every third photo taken by those ages 18 to 24 is a selfie. You take selfies, probably. I take selfies occasionally. We all take selfies, for the most part. 
I know some of us are saying, no, not me, but you're the exception to the rule. People take selfies. Can I get an amen from the young people on the first row? Selfies, they happen, don't they? Often. 24 billion last year. Just last year. 24 billion selfies. You know what the top three selfie countries are in the world? The top three selfie countries. One, the first is Australia. That surprised me. Australia. Number two, United States of America. And number three, Canada. The top three countries producing selfies in our world today. And here's an interesting thought. Most people, according to the surveys on selfies, why am I talking about selfies, by the way? Is there an S word that we've been talking about studying with Paul? What's it called? Selfishness. Selfishness, okay. So most people think other people's selfies are borderline narcissistic. (laughs) It's true. Most people look at your selfie and my selfie, and they say, I think, I think that selfie Pastor Tim put on there, is, he's, he's in love with himself. Something wrong with him. I don't know what's wrong with these people. They think I want to look at that. Why would anybody want to look at that? That's not all that great. or what, you know. They're borderline narcissistic, but guess what? On the other hand, if they post a selfie, then theirs is authentic, interesting, and totally appropriate for public consumption. You talk about the height of hypocrisy. Am I right? It's true. This is how we, how we are sometimes because we've got these bro- a broken world and we've got these broken hearts and, and these are forgiven hearts, but they're still broken and they don't ma- always make the best decisions sometimes. All right, now, Paul says that self needs to get off the throne in our hearts. That's what Paul is saying. If I could sum it up, self Needs to, that doesn't mean you can't do selfies. Self, selfishness, self needs to not be on the throne of our hearts. Humility and love for others should be our posture. And that happens best when we allow God to save us from ourselves, to save us from our sins, and to allow The Holy Spirit, who is God, the Holy Spirit, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus and are saved, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, transforms us, and fills us with the character of God. So that who we want to be is not who we used to be. But we still behave like we used to once in a while for which we ask God to forgive us and help us, and we come to the church of Jesus Christ on a regular basis so that we can study these scriptures and say, whoops, I might have slipped a little bit on selfishness. I think I might have dipped my sail a little while there. Uh, And something for us to think about. And the Holy Spirit and the study of God's Word, like we are here today, it pulls self off the throne because self is always trying to climb back on that throne. Have you ever noticed that about your journey with God? Self is always trying to climb back in that seat. And it gives the love that we have for God an opportunity to thrive and cuts down on the divisiveness that can happen in a church and basically in our relationships in general. 
So we've got another Pastor Tim drawing here. And so when it comes up, it's going to show you God as the center. Not self, but God. And when God is at the center of my world instead of me at the center of my world, I can have confidence that I am moving in God's direction and not toward the enemy. So Paul says that allowing self to be at the center of our universe has to be put away. So if you're taking notes, here's just four things here. Self as the center of our universe needs to be put away. It's not appropriate. It will come back, self will get back on that seat. I promise you it will get back on that seat sooner or later. And when it does, you need to knock it off. You need to say, God, help me. I started to be on the throne all of a sudden there, just for a little bit. And I'm sorry. Help me. Get him off. Number two, humility needs to come in its place. Humility. That's what I tried to show you about a national championship leader. And what you saw is a humility. If anything good came from this season, it was something God sent. And we listened, and we tried to apply that over the course of trying to be good basketball players. Humility needs to come in its place, in the place of self being on the throne. Number three, love for the needs of others needs to be our work and our habit. You say, well, why in the world, if I bring my tithes and my my offerings on a regular basis, why do I have to do 30 pieces of silver? Because... There's a loving for the needs of others needs to be our work and our habit. And so, so here's how you process that. If you don't have anything to put in 30 pieces of silver, or you just decided you didn't want to, then don't. But don't talk about it. Don't talk about it because the motive for it is to love and be concerned for others in need. Amen? That's the whole motive for it. Otherwise, we wouldn't bother with it. Love for the needs of others needs to be our work and our habit, meeting the needs of hurting people. And number four, and we need to be in it together as a unified effort in the life of the church. We need to be in this thing together. Even though we have opinions, we have opinions about all kinds of things. You can have an opinion about 30 pieces of silver, it's a free country. You can do that. You can have an opinion about whether the Wesleyan denomination should have done this reaffirmation thing after all these years or not. You have an opinion, but we're in this together. That's, that's so vital and so important. We need to collectively and in a unified effort care for one another and care for the hurting people around us. I like something John MacArthur, he's a, a gifted expository teacher, And let me just quote you what he said. It is an immeasurable tragedy that modern culture, including much of the church, has largely through the influence of secular psychology rejected the divinely commanded principles of humility and selflessness. When the supreme virtue is self-love and the supreme purpose in life is self-fulfillment, Mutual respect is replaced by disrespect. Mutual service by apathy and indifference. 
and mutual love by enmity and hatred. Unquote. So, drawing this to a close, what should we do? Well, first thing is, get saved. That's the first thing. If you're not saved, saved meaning if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and you have not had the presence of the Holy Spirit come in to transform this broken heart that lives in this broken world, you just really don't have a fighting chance. So you need, to, you need Jesus. You need the power of Christ, the authority of the living God to come into your life to help you get self off the throne so that you, can, you and I can live lives of compassion and love, one heart, one mind, one spirit, walking in unity together, arms locked, until Jesus comes for us. And so the question is, are you saved? And if you're not saved, we're going to pray at the end of this service, and we're going to just give you an opportunity to say, Jesus, I, I, I'm not saved. I, I, you know, I, never, I didn't even know I was going to be thinking about getting saved. I just never thought about it very much. But according to what the preacher is saying from the Word of God, everybody needs to be saved so that we can be in, be, be in heaven one day, forever, and while we're waiting to have help and encouragement. And I need all of that. I want all of that. And you don't even have to prove it to me. I just want that. I just somehow inside of me by faith, I just, I just want that. And just reach out to God and say, I'm sorry for my sins. And I believe what Jesus did on the cross covered the debt that I owed you, God. And so please come in. Sounds too good to be true, but I want you to come in and transform me and get my big S selfishness off the throne of my heart and life. That's the first thing. The second thing is, Live out the Copernicus Revolution. Every day, live out the Copernicus Revolution as it pertains to, guess what? This world doesn't revolve around me. So I'm going to give you three things that you can think about this today and hopefully the rest of your life. Number one, see others around you. See other people. You know, when, you, when we are consumed with self, we, we don't really see other people clearly. Not clearly. We see them so we don't bump into them and, and they don't bump into us and, and we have to negotiate life, whatever. But no, really see. R really see that this person we prayed for has a tremendous challenge tomorrow morning. And see that. Let ourselves feel it and get in touch with it and then talk to God about it, okay? Then number two, not just see people, but love others sincerely. To, to, to sincerely love the unlovely, the hurting, and the broken. And then number three, to serve other people compassionately. To serve others compassionately. So as I'm asking, I'm asking these things of myself today. Do I really see all of the people that are really around me every day, each week? Am I loving people sincerely? I'm not talking about fake friendships. How many want to live in a fake marriage, a pretend marriage? Anybody want a marriage like that? What if I told you there's some probably out in this audience and the ones that are listening on the internet? They are pretend marriages. They get along, 
And the finances kind of work better because two pulling into one. And you get all those things that kind of make it somewhat workable. But, but they're pretend when it comes to true love and bonding and the kinds of things that God intended for a relationship. How about a pretend friendship? Anybody interested in a pretend friendship? They tell you the things that you want to hear so they got somebody to hang out with. But as soon as somebody better comes along, you get dropped so fast it'll make your head spin. Pretend friendship. Guess what? Pretend church. <laughs> I wonder what the Lord says about all. He can see down into the very heart of every church around this globe. And I wonder how many he would say, nope, that's pretend. Yeah, they look good on the outside. They got plenty of money to do stuff and they got a big thing and whatever. But it's pretend. It doesn't deal with the nitty gritty. It's not talking about the things that matter to me about transformation and all these other kinds of things. So we need that wake up call that helps us to, do I see others around me? Do I really love people sincerely? And am I serving others compassionately? So I want to put this little last little picture up on the screen. And it's a picture of that mercury and that mercury coming together. You know, that big glob there right in the middle, that's the family of God. And some of these off to the side, you could say, well, those are, those are other churches all around the world. Or we could say that some of those that are outside of that are people that need to come into faith and get into the big family of God. Uh, and, and they need a transformation because they, they won't, that, that mercury, if it's not mercury, it won't let it in. <laughs> if, you're not, if you're not born again, you're not getting into heaven. It's because it's the family thing. It's, it's, you know, it's the nature of the elements. So let me close with this illustration. What would your spouse or your best friend say if you posed this question to them today? What would your, if you're married, what would your spouse say? And if you're not married, uh, what would your friend, maybe a best friend or whatever, someone you could ask this question, what if you posed this question to your spouse today? From your perspective, where do I show signs of selfishness? Where do I show signs of selfishness. As I was preparing for this message, I ran across a pastor who was preaching on this same subject, and, and uh, it struck me because he, 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 he shared, he shared uh, a little personal piece of his world trying to deal with this question. And so he said, on my way to the office this morning, meaning whenever he preached this sermon, he said, I texted my wife, and it said, honey, uh, from your perspective, uh, am I selfish? Where, where am I selfish? How many of you got guts to do that? And so she texted him back two things, and then she made a comment. She said, uh, well, I, I don't remember the second one, but I remember the first one was, you know, sometimes you leave your socks and stuff laying around as though it's my job to have to pick them up, you know. And so to me, that's kind of selfish to expect me to have to do that, you know. I mean, maybe a small thing, but to me it's selfish, you know. Why should I have to do that? And then something else along that line. And the camera panned out into the audience of the church people, whatever, and, and got right on his wife. Picture was right on his wife. Now, fortunately, they were having a good time with it. And the people were all laughing about, pick the socks up. Yeah, that's selfish. My own husband does that, you know, and they're laughing and whatever. And it was kind of a little Mickey Mouse problem. I mean, it is. It's not a huge issue. 
And then he said, but she made a statement after that that really touched my heart. And what she said was, you asked me for a couple of things that seemed kind of selfish. But, and I gave you a couple. But the truth is, you've really been working on this. That's what she said to her husband. You have really been working on this. As if to say, and I'm so thankful. Because the two things that I gave you were pretty Mickey Mouse. They really were, compared to how it could have been. And he gave it how it could have been. He said, oh, I can remember days when I'd come home from the office. And he said, my wife might be watching a television program or something. He said, I, I had the gall to go in there and take the remote. And I changed the channel while she's watching the TV. I changed the channel. You talk about selfish. He said, oh, man. So what she said was, you've really been working on this. And he said, boy, that blessed my heart. So uh, this morning on the way to the, <laughs> to the church, I looked over at my wife and I said, uh, I didn't tell her this whole story yet. And I said, honey, if I were to ask you from your perspective, am I selfish? Do you see selfishness in my life? And her answer, can I give the answer? Is that all right? Really? If you can add to it, okay. <laughs> so, does that mean you thought of some stuff after you answered it? Is that what that means? Okay, there goes my whole illustration. <laughs> so, so I said, I said, um, so from your perspective, what things about me you perceive as selfish? And she said, she said something to this effect. Well you really are a very giving person. And I think it's something that you've really worked hard on. And I thought to myself, that made me feel like that pastor in that illustration felt. Because I felt like, you know, I haven't arrived. I know that. And that's probably what she'd like to add. I have not arrived. I know that. But I am working on it. And then she said something pretty important. She said, how can anybody live in a long-term relationship like we have been in and be living with a person that isn't willing to be working on that stuff? Wow. So as we close this morning in prayer, two questions. It's not about me now. We had a little fun. What, by the way, was there anything else you wanted to add to that? You sure? You'll tell me on the way home? <laughs> Question one, am I selfish? Question two, am I working on it? In the life of the church, am I selfish? And if the answer is sometimes, am I working on it? God help me, am I working on it? That's what I hear Paul saying to us. This is the deeper life. This is the stuff that it takes a little bit of time and a little bit of courage, quite frankly, because, because it starts off negative, but it's really positive. It's really a positive thing to be working on such an important piece of our lives. Amen? It really is. So let's stand. And uh, I want to pray for people who might want to give their heart to Christ. And by the way, 
If you want to give your heart to Jesus, if you want to be baptized, if you want to learn how to become a member of this church, uh, these communication cards, you can grab another one and, and you can select that and, and I'm sure God will help you uh, with that. But let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, there may be some who are listening by way of the internet and, and certainly right here in this room who have yet to ask Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, to come and live in their hearts and their minds and to help us get God on the throne and self off. And I ask you, Jesus, to change me and transform me because I'm kind of the opposite of what we ended up talking about. I'm kind of the poster child for conceit, lack of humility, and selfishness at times. I've had a problem with it. And so I ask you, Jesus, to come and save me and forgive me of my sins and help me to live the kind of life that you've created me to live. Thank you for coming in, Jesus. If you prayed that prayer, we'd encourage you to either come forward here to the front of the service and we can, we can meet with you and pray with you or stop back in the foyer. There's a prayer room and there'll be somebody that will meet you back there and, and talk to you more. But now, Heavenly Father, as we close, we're asking this question, am I selfish? And am I working on it? And am I working on my selfishness at times? And so, Father, there may be some hearts that are feeling a bit humbled by Paul's challenge to the church, the true church. Because the true, ch the true church does not chafe under this kind of instruction. The true church of Jesus Christ already wants to be this kind of person. Not selfish, not self-centered, without self on the throne. That's what we want. We just need a, a reminder. We just need a little boost once in a while. We just need a little help over the hurdle, the hump in our life. And for a second there, we got self-centered. So forgive us for that. And help us to see the people around us. And help us to be careful about division and divisiveness and the kinds of things the enemy tries to, to use to come against the church, the true church of Jesus Christ. And help us to have one heart and one mind and to walk in unity together, forgiving one another and bearing one another's burdens. Help us, God, with our selfishness. Heal us, strengthen us, fill us afresh and anew. And we give you praise and glory. Amen.